This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Let's get back to Night Gallery for a second. So you, you, you do the pilot, um, one of the most famous Night Galleries in and of itself. Um, I understand you did another one. Which one was that and what happened there? Well, after that, the, the pilot sold. Yep. And NBC decided to book a season, maybe 20 shows. And um, they hired me once again to come back in and do uh, uh, a segment. So in one hour, there's, there's a number of small segments. My segment was about 11 minutes long. It wasn't very long. It was a segment called Make Me Laugh. Uh, the, it, the network casted. I had no casting say. Mm-hmm. The network put, put B.S. Pulley, Eddie Mayoff, uh, um, um, great Damon Runyon actor characters, and especially Godfrey Cambridge, who I was a huge fan of. And I came on the set, and because it was only 11 minutes long, I had this idea of shooting the whole 11 minutes in one shot. Mm -hmm. The camera only takes 10 minutes to film, and I had to figure out, what am I going to do with that 11th minute, because the film runs out after 10 minutes with a 1,000-foot magazine. Uh, But I staged the whole thing across four sets in one shot, storyboarded it, rehearsed it. Everybody was excited about it. And then when the executives sat down to watch the rushes the next day, they saw the entire 10-minute take of most of the show. And they were appalled. Where's the close-up coverage? Where are the over-the-shoulder shots? Where, 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 is the, where are the prerequisites for making it look like a television show? Sure. And I immediately got a call from an executive, I won't mention that person's name, who said, we are appalled by what we see. That's one of the most irresponsible uh, um, ex- experiences I've ever had with a director working for me. And we're going to reshoot the show with another director, and that was that was that was the end of it. I wish I wish I had a copy of that shot. Oh, you don't. That's it was a ask. terrific shot, but I don't have a copy of it. Do you ever go back and talk to the the, the fella who took you off the project? I, yes, about fifteen twenty years later, uh, um, I believe it was after uh, a bunch of films had come out that were successful, <laughs> and I bumped into him at a party, and he he said some very nice things. That's nice. That's nice. There's this fantastic scene at the end of the Fablemans, not spoiler, um, where Sammy, Sam, gets to meet John Ford, one of the greatest directors of all time. And he gives Sam essentially three bits of advice. It's all one bit of advice, but it's it's got three parts to it. Okay. And the last bit of advice is get the f*** out of my office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um... What inspired you to cast David Lynch in that part? 
because it's a perfect casting. I had an actor in mind, I won't mention who it is, he's a friend of mine, to play John Ford. And then Tony Kutcher's husband, Mark Harris, uh, said, what about David Lynch? And Tony called me so excited and said, you know what Mark just suggested? Who Mark just suggested? David Lynch! And the light bulbs went off. The second I heard that name, I went, oh my God. Mark is so right. And so I called David. So if somebody dropped a 22-year-old director in, in your office, and this may have happened, but if you only could give him that brevity of advice that John Ford gave you, because that's a true story, yes? Yes, everything, word for word, is what, to the best of my recollection, happened to me. Someone came into your office the way you came into John Ford's office, right? and you said, say, I want to be a director, and you go, yeah, I really want to do what would you say to him? I would talk to him a lot longer than two minutes and 40 seconds. I promise you. <laughs> when you leave, when you left that office, I love the moment, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say what the best okay. part of that last shot is, but I think <laughs> I know you know what, what I'm say. talking about. I know what about. you're talking about, And yeah. that moment, did you feel the way, was it as significant to you in that moment as it is to the character Sam? Yes, absolutely. Why? Sure. Because I learned something. Mm. Because it, you know, for a long time, uh, I thought that was that was a horrible moment that happened to me. My hero, even then, when I'm just almost 18 years old, my yeah. hero gives me a bollocking in his office mm. and tells me to get the out. Mm -hmm. And and so I was so traumatized by just being in front of arguably the greatest American director in history, and then having to live with that for years, the humiliation of what he did to me without giving him the credit for what he was actually trying to tell me, which is, look at art, go to museums, look at composition, look at color, look at the horizon. He was basically, in two, hour, two minutes and 40 seconds, giving me some of the greatest advice anybody's ever given me. But he did it in such a gruff way that I only saw the crustiness, and I didn't, I, I didn't appreciate the value until years later. What movie, not your own, do you think you have watched the most? I think, uh, not my own? Yes. Lawrence of Arabia. I've probably watched that movie more than any other film. What does that movie mean to you? Well, the thing that it means to me is it's, it's one of the most audacious films I've ever seen because it is a deeply detailed portrait of a lonely human being who doesn't know anything about himself, who, who has, has very little identity. His identity comes from what people say about him, what people write about him, and the people who take his picture. But he doesn't have any familiarity with what is within him. And yet, that very personal story that could have been told in close-ups is set against a backdrop, a mural, of some of the most spectacular scenic action I've ever seen in my life, in any movie I've ever seen. So is it's, there? It's, 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 a, it's basically the juxtaposition between the, 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 the small and the gargantuan. Do you see yourself in Lawrence at all? No, I don't see myself in Lawrence. Let character. me back up why I'm asking yeah. you this and why I'm, yeah. why I'm going to force you to say I'm right, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> At various times in that movie, Lawrence mm -hmm. says polite variations on, yes, it's impossible. I'm going to do it. 
Yeah, well, I see myself in that. That's what I mean. That because that, there are multiple times yes. when it can't be done. I I will do it. Or yes, yes it, it it's impossible done. I did it. Yes. Those are important things as part of his identity that he does the impossible. Nothing is written. I will do the thing that I will to have happen. And that seems related to someone in the director's chair or even before that at the yes. on the blank page. Right. There was nothing and now there is this beautiful thing that affects mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. That is both magical and also an act of will that you do the impossible. Movie making is impossible. Even if you know how it's done, it seems too huge to be done. And that's what I mean. Do you see that in you? So is picking up a blank piece of paper and drawing a sketch that never existed before you took the, took the pencil in your hand. You know, the, the act of creation, which all of us are capable of, and all of us do, whether we know it or not, is the most extraordinary thing that we as a species could possibly... The, that Those are the gifts we're and opportunities were given all the time. Um, but Lawrence is hubris. Mm. I don't identify with. Mm. I don't identify with his ego. Um, the need, um, the need to it... let everybody know and announce what he's doing and, 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 mm-hmm. be, and be applauded or, 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 or being appalled by, 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 sure. by his actions. All the serving officers working with him in the British Army are appalled by much of his, uh, his ambitions. Uh, um, but I, I don't have that kind of an ego. I don't identify with the ego of, of T.E. Lawrence. So you don't get a particular excitement from doing the hard thing? I do, but I don't applaud myself for it, and I don't talk about it, and I don't say, you know what I did today, honey? I did a really hard thing, and I got a lot of credit for it. Ain't I great? That's not me. You should be married to me then, because that's all my wife ever hears. How did you possibly pull off in one year Jurassic Park and Schindler's List? That seems like, I, I don't, how do you reconcile keeping both of those in your head at the same time? I had developed Schindler's List for over 10 years before I made it. I got the, uh, Sid Scheinberg had found the book and sent me the book in 1982. He sent me the book the, the weekend E.T. was released. Mm-hmm. He'd read a review in the New York Times book review section. And he said, sir, as he would characteristically say to his friend, sir, I think this would make an excellent movie. You should read the, the review. And he sent me the review. And then he sent me the book the next day. And it took me 10 years to work up the nerve to because there was such responsibility in telling that story. Yeah. Um, uh, but at the same time, I had been developing a, the, uh, the script with Stephen Zalian. There were several writers on before, one writer on before Stephen. And then um, Steve, Steve did a terrific draft, and we were developing the draft, but I hadn't read the, the script yet. Steve and I had gone to Poland together. We went to Krakow. We went to all the actual sites of the Holocaust mm-hmm. there. But I was immediately making, making uh, Jurassic Park. And I, was, I had just finished shooting, and I had cut the film together when Steve Zalian finally finished his draft, and he gave it to me to read. And I read it with my wife. We, we passed pages to each other. Mm-hmm. And I knew when we got to page 167 that I had to make the movie now. I had to make the movie because I didn't want to miss the winter in, in Poland. I didn't want to have to wait a whole year mm-hmm. because it had to be shot in the snow. And so I basically called the producer, my, my co-producer, on Jurassic Kathy Kennedy, and I said, I got I to gotta jump ship. I got to make Schindler's List. 
And don't ask me why, I just have to make it right now. How far along were you in Jurassic Park? I had, I had edited the whole film, and all that was left was mixing and color correction and sound effects editing. That was left. And so Kathy took over the production, and I asked George Lucas if he would supervise the, the dub, and George came in and dubbed the picture for me. It's <laughs> nice to have George Lucas as a, as a friend at that as moment. A, as a best friend always. What do you think of AI-generated art? I and love it. And what do you think that's going to mean to the creation of film in the future? Well, well, I love, I love anything that is created not by a computer but by a human person. When a human person uses the medium of the digital tools mm -hmm. to express themselves and say something, that's fantastic. You know, well, the concern with AI is that criteria is put into an artificial intelligence and reference is put into it, and then you request uh, basically a melange of these various references and criteria to execute that, and then you get basically something that looks like it was made by a human, but it was actually an imitation created by this quote-unquote artificial intelligence, and it's got a lot of graphic uh, artists very nervous. It's got me very nervous because you're basically taking something you created and you made, which is the computer, mm -hmm. and giving the computer autonomy over your point of view and, and yourself as a human person. Do you think that those making artificial intelligence are so preoccupied with whether they could, they're not stopping to think whether they should? Uh, I'm worried about that, but people who do that for a living you know, don't really, I don't think they have the, I don't think it's about morality, it's just about climbing a mountain and getting to the top and then looking back down to, 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 to ask the question, is this going to better serve the, human, the you, know, you, know, you know, humanity or is this going to default to what I created mm -hmm. and now is going to, in a way, I've already done that movie. I told that story with sure. AI. Yes. Because look what takes over from, from humanity. The creation of humanity, the creation, these, these sort of, sort of um, what you call sim simulacrums uh, of, of, of people who, who didn't even think whether they, they could, whether they should, they only thought about whether they could. So they built these super meccas, and the super meccas have turned around, looked back into the past, and now they are kind of praying to the God that created them. And, 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 they, and they look at David, the little boy, because he was the first iteration mm. of, of you know, a sentient being. And now they kind of are devoted to David because he was touched by human hands. And the human hands no longer exist because humans basically defaulted to their own creations. And, 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 and so what do you have when that happens? Well, I think the soul is 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 unimaginable and is ineffable the soul and it cannot be created by any algorithm it is just something that exists in all of us and to lose that because books and movies and music is being written by machines that we created and now we're letting them mm -hmm. run with that that terrifies me it's possible it won't be serving mankind. It'll be the twilight zone to serve man. It'll turn out to be a cookbook. And we're on the menu.
if we do make contact with an alien intelligent life form, what movie would you show them to explain humans? Oh dear. That is, it's a great question. Thank you. That's a great question. I don't have an answer for it right away. That's a great question, and it deserves some something thought. less glib. I, was, I had some glib answers on the tip of my tongue, which I'm not going to give you. I mean, an example for me, yeah. and, and I don't even know if there's a good film of it. I'm sure there is a film of it, but our town is a, a trying to look objectively at the human experience. Yes. You know, it's a deconstruction yes. of what is beautiful and yes. precious about every day in our lives. Yes. And to me, that sort of thing, the yes. sort of thing that is the quotidian joy of our lives that we don't see. Exactly. Well, what movie would you not show them? What movie would I, would I, would I not show the aliens? I, I probably um, wouldn't show them Nope. <laughs> they might be offended. I love Nope. No, they wouldn't be offended. They probably love Nope. It would probably oh. become their emblem. Their, uh, but I, I think that um, It's a Wonderful Life would be an interesting film to show the worst and the best of us in one story. More with Steven Spielberg after this. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, last week I had the extraordinary opportunity to sit down with Steven Spielberg and composer John Williams. This pair has been working together for over 50 years, and their most recent collaboration, The Fablemans, is up for seven Academy Awards this Sunday, including Best Picture, Best Director, and best original score for Williams, which will be his 53rd nomination. We weren't able to fit in all of our conversation last week, so tonight I'm pleased to share the rest of my conversation with these two Hollywood icons. Jim? John Williams, thanks for sitting down with us. Great pleasure. Is there a favorite score for Steven Spielberg that you've done? Probably E.T. in totality. Other other aspects and sections of other things that I... Is there a reason why that one has a special place in your heart? I I think structurally, what happened, the development of the musical structure with the story, I think would be be my answer to you. You, We remember the film when the bicycles take off. But prior to that, the bicycles, you will hear two or three notes of the theme, that's all. And the next time you may hear three or four notes... And it's beginning to form in your memory as we're going along with the thing. Mm. And as the bicycles take off, you hear all 12 of the notes, and the melody is realized and finished. I'd like to believe that the audience as a sense of completion and, and mm-hmm. something has been made orally uh, that, that is created and aimed at that very moment. And also, it's great showmanship. 
<laughs> to build it that way, it to is? To build it that way. And I've always said, I can get an audience to the brink of crying, mm -hmm. but Johnny's music makes the tears fall. He takes it the rest of the way. Without being sentimental, by the way. <laughs> yes. without, being, without being maudlin or mawkish. Well, we, we hope so. Yep. We hope so, we hope yeah. So. Let's go away from that emotion to a different one. You said in E.T., a note here, two notes there. Let's talk about the two most famous notes you've ever played. Let's talk about the Jaws soundtrack. <laughs> okay. So why just those two notes in Jaws? Was the budget that tight? You couldn't afford a third <laughs> well, note? I thought it was a joke when Johnny played that for me on the piano at his house. Talk me through that moment. So, Well, he called me up and he said, I've got the theme for Jaws. Come over and listen to it on the piano. And I came running over to Johnny's house and Johnny sat down on the piano and Johnny was really excited to preview this for me. And he takes a couple of fingers, not all ten, just a couple. He didn't need all ten. And he goes, da da I started laughing. I started laughing. I knew Johnny had a sense of humor, but he never teased me before. I thought, oh, this is a new side of Johnny. We've only done one movie together before that, which was Sugarland Express. Now, now he's he's looser and kind of we're buddies now, and now he can tease me and then say, no, 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 here's the real music. And that no, Johnny said, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. So what did you this take of it. his reaction? <laughs> well, he did say, you can't be serious. And I said, I think, we'll see, we'll try it. With the cellos and basses of the orchestra. Uh -huh. Even one note. Mm -hmm. G, um, two, you know, and so forth. So what was the inspiration there for you? Because it's, you know, it's bold to do less. Well, I, it's it, 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 certainly a challenge. It's a challenge yeah. like that. He gives me these films, and it's terrifying. What are you going to do with it? We've been talking about right. the value of anxiety. It, okay. right. What's the value well, of anxiety for you? It, it does a lot. First of all, it, it gives you a trigger, a little, like a before, before a performance, you know this. There's right. certain adrenaline that, you, right. that is going to you're sharpen not nervous, up then all you're not of these trying. things. Right. So our performance levels will go probably, uh, hopefully, up before a concert or whatever, film recording. But I, I was thinking, what could, what could be the simplest possible thing? It has to be low, because the shark is very deep. Mm -hmm. It has to be something that, when it's approaching you, it is completely unstoppable. There isn't a force on Earth that's going to stop a shark in his attack from you. And I thought to myself, it's mindless. But someone who knows, knows that world would say the shark is a very intelligent creature, and it's not at all mindless. But another big issue with us was that if you play this very softly and slowly, it's, it, you, you advertise or you advance the, the, the thought that the shark is there just by hearing the music. There's no shark nearby. But if it speeds up and comes closer to you and gets louder and louder, the same two notes. You've got an actor that you can't see and a threat that you, by some primordial instinct, uh, you're threatened by, as we should be, by a great predator. And the shark wasn't working anyway, so I didn't have a shark. The shark was always nearby. It was in the shark shed getting fixed. And so all I could do was go off and figure out, I got to make my movie now, now without a shark. So I did. I tried a lot of scenes where there was supposed to be a shark in the script. There was a shark, yes. but there was no shark in the scene. So I just started making stuff up, like like a pier getting pulled out by the shark that you don't see, and the pier turns around, so the pier so becomes the shark. that was all because, because, you, because you wanted to work. use the shark for that, but you just couldn't get him? Yeah, the shark was scheduled, uh, but the shark didn't make its, 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 its uh, call time because it was getting fixed all the time.
But Johnny sort of saved the movie because he became the shark. And the music substituted for the absent shark, which made it a hell of a lot scarier and more suspenseful than had I had the shark working perfectly. What are those two notes, by the way? Well, in, in originally E and F, E, F, E, F, E, F, E, F, D, E, E, F, E, F, D, E. The three notes, really. I'm terrified just hearing the name. We need a piano. That's good. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yes, sir. Five notes that are crucial to communicating with the aliens. Bum, 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 ba, ba. That's it, right? Okay. Why those five notes? Oh, my God, what a question. Well, I have pages of, of, uh, of attempts. Right. And Stephen and I kept coming back to this one that we circled. Why those notes? Ba, be, bum, dee, da, dum. That's a finish. Dee, da, dum. It's over. That's a resol resolution. Da, da, da. Mi, re, do. Now we go do, sol. Sol is like the word and or but. It's a conjunction. So you have an ending and a starting. Dee, da, da, dum, bum. Yeah, you got to do it again. That's a continuing story. Yes, it is. I mean, that is a that is an after the fact rationalization, or <laughs> but that's what it feels like. To or, yeah. or that's what it feels like. I mean, how the Desiree in the Latin tradition. I don't think I can sing it. Uh, it's one of those things that seems to belong to civilization. But I think if you if you end a sentence and start something else with a short conjunction of one or two notes, it will draw you in rather than da da dum. We can sit down. Dum, it's over. That's fine. That's an ending. Mm -hmm. It's also a conversation. The, I conceived in the script that that the that that music is how they first make each other's acquaintances through music. that came from probably my father mm. who was a, like a math genius my mom was a musical genius my dad was a math genius I was about to say I yeah. read that you would imagine that math would be the language and music is math in that sense and I wanted that to be because I didn't want them putting complicated equations up on blackboards for each other so I thought music would be the the, the, the quickest way to the heart of the audience to get them to understand this sort of first contact between an extraordinary extraterrestrial civilization, advanced civilization, and we here on Earth. People were under the impression that the Fablemans would be your last score and that you'd be retiring. But now I understand that that's not necessarily the case. Well, Is that man to blame right there? Is he roping you back in? I know he would be, certainly to blame. I think I must have put my foot in my mouth somewhere, having said that. Uh, Stephen is a no. Uh, he's a lot of things, but you can't, he's a man you can't say no to. Uh, that's for certain. And I, I wanted to say at the beginning that we've been together 50 years, which, in any kind of measure, a cosmic measure or a spiritual measure, it's a very, very short time. In Earth time, Earth time, it's Earth long time, time. Yes, yes. I want to think of it as a new good start. That we we, we can go from here for another 50 years. <laughs> Thanks again to Steven Spielberg and John Williams. You can watch The Fablemans in theaters and at home now. Thank you for listening to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. 
The Late Show will be back from our spring break on March 27th with all new episodes. If you're enjoying The Late Show Pod Show, leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. For more exclusive Late Show content, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Late Show on YouTube. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game. Headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy.